All right, good morning. My name is Chuck Leemaster with Team Faith. Privileged to be here with you this morning. It's a beautiful day. I'm, uh, I live down in Nashville, Tennessee, and it's been kind of hot down there. Well, we were just down here two weeks ago at Loretta's, and it was hot. And so being up on this mountain with a nice breeze going and having to wear a sweatshirt is kind of a relief. Um, man, we had a big time last night. We're still doing Team Faith Youth on Friday nights and Saturday nights. And we did dodgeball right out here in the, in the grass right next to the tent here. And I don't know, 50 people or so. Lots of adults, lots of kids. Um, <laughs> kids getting beamed in the head and crying. And, but candy solves all those problems. So it was a good time. And thanks to you guys that were able to come out and participate with that a little bit. It, it's making an impact on the next generation and, and bringing people in. So uh, our heart is to share the love of Jesus Christ with this whole racing community. So that's, that's a part of it. If you want to participate in next week's activities at John Penton, we'll be doing the water truck water slide. So bring your swim trunks. And uh, we'll, we'll park that truck up on top of the hill. And that, that was a big hit last year. That was our biggest attendance. So uh, feel free to come on out and help me out. I need the help, to be honest with you. So uh, thanks for everything. Man, this morning, our hearts are... Our hearts are kind of heavy. Just if you're not aware, there was an incident, a racing incident yesterday, coming into the finish line where a four-wheeler, um, it's just a racing incident. Boric's bike went out of control and into the crowd and sent uh, five people to the hospital. We had three helicopters parked out here on the hill and flying people in. Um, the reports are that everybody's stable and broken bones, and even Jason Hooper, our uh, you know the the guy that puts together Racer TV. He's got two broken uh, bones in his leg. He's posting pictures on Facebook, and he's okay. Just broken legs are never fun. So our hearts are heavy for that. Um, but today's a race day, and we are blessed to be here, and we're thankful that God answered prayers that people are uh, going to be okay in that. Uh, one of our own, though, Mark um, Frederick, he's, uh, he's, he's, one of, uh, he's one of us that comes to chapel every day, and he just told me this morning, that uh, he's got a sister-in-law that is losing her battle to cancer. And uh, so I want to say a prayer for her. Her name's Sandra. And uh, we want to lift her and her family up in prayer. And, of course, he's going to race in her honor today. So uh, I think that's pretty noble and want to definitely support that. So pray with me if you would. Lord, thanks so much for this beautiful day. Thanks for the sunshine. Being uh, The opportunity to be at a racetrack is uh, just unbelievable. When we look around the world and we see what could be of our lives and where else we might be, be at and what else we might be doing. We are just grateful to be here and we're thankful and uh, we just lift up the people that were involved in yesterday's incident, racing incident. Uh, continue to put your hand on them and provide healing and uh, peace to the families and quick and speedy recoveries for all involved. Uh, be with Chris Borich as we know that he feels terrible but it was a racing incident. Use this, use any circumstance to draw any of us closer to you but our, our hearts go out to Chris Borich right now and just pray that you will uh, reveal yourself in a special way to him. I pray for Sandra as she's losing her battle with cancer right now. Lord, it's never fun. Um, we know that you have a plan, you have a purpose, that eternity stretches on forever. And it's easy to say that with our mouth. It's hard to understand that with our hearts because you created us with compassion, with love for one another, and we hate to lose someone. And uh, so just be with her family. Be with Mark today and his family. Provide peace and comfort. And uh, just, just may today be a, a special day of peace and, and a blessing for that family. We love you. Would you open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have to say for us today? In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, thanks so much. Um, it is never fun to be conned, is it? Anybody? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but you ever been a part of a scam or you know somebody has been scammed? I mean, it's only fun in the movies. One of my favorite movies is Ocean's 11 or 12 or 13. Take your pick. <laughs> Any of those movies, that's cool. 
because you see you see the good bad guys scamming the bad bad guys, and that's all fun. That that's a pretty those are those are entertainment. When we see it in Hollywood, the scam, the con, the manipulation, that's all cool in the movies. But in real life, not much fun. Think back. We've all heard of the Ponzi scheme. We know of the Ponzi scheme because there's a guy named Bernie Madoff just a few years ago who had constructed constructed this elaborate Ponzi scheme where he was selling investments that weren't actually in existence. And he was selling these investments. He built investors out of $17 billion. And now he's serving a 150-year jail sentence, uh, and he's in his 70s. So he's going to die in prison, obviously. He's not getting out. But I didn't even know, honestly, all this talk of a Ponzi scheme. I didn't even know what a Ponzi scheme was. So I looked it up goes back to the 1920s, a guy named Charles Ponzi. He was an immigrant from Italy. He, he was living in America. He went back home to Italy, and while in Italy, he saw these United States postal coupons on sale in Italy, and they were, they were for sale in Italy less than face value here in America. So he bought some U.S. postal coupons, which I don't even know what they are, but they were for shipping, shipping packages internationally. Bought the coupons in Italy, came back to America, redeemed them at face value, and he made about 100 bucks. He thought that's pretty cool, and 100 bucks is no insignificant amount of money in the 1920s. He said, this is a good deal. I'm going to sell this idea as an investment. And so he started brokering uh, U.S. postal coupons. And he started selling so many postal coupons that it turned out that the number of coupons that he sold, there was only like 1% of that number in existence in the whole world. But he was selling these coupons to people and saying, hey, uh, if, if, you'll, if you'll let me manage this, I'll make you a return on your investment. So what he was doing was he was taking the new money in and paying off the old investors. This went on for about a year. It only lasted for about a year. And in that year, he built $20 million out of people. And that's where the term Ponzi scheme comes from. Now, last week, what does that have to do with anything? Last week, we were talking about the temptations of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, when he was out in the wilderness, Satan comes to him and says, Hey, I want to, I'm going to tempt you on these things. And one of the things that he tempted Jesus on was he took him to the highest point of the temple, took him to the pinnacle of the temple, and said, If you will jump off of here, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, actually, that says that if you are the Son of God, then God will send his angels to take care of you so that you don't even strike your foot against a stone. So go ahead and jump. And Jesus says, You should not test the Lord your God. In other words, don't manipulate God. And I had a hard time wrapping my head around that, like manipulate God. I mean, what's the, the con? It's all about manipulation and deception. And so I started looking into it because like, I want to explore that. How do we manipulate God? So as I started doing some research on manipulation and the con, I looked up the greatest cons of all time. And that's where I got my information on, on Charles Ponzi. But the, one of the biggest cons of all time happened just a few years ago. It was, uh, you know what salting is? I had no idea. I thought salting was salt your food. Salting is a term from the 1800s, late 1800s, uh, when the gold rush was in full swing out in California. Remember the 49ers, uh, not, not the San Francisco 49ers, but the, the gold rush of 1849. Everybody goes out to California. They start digging gold mines. They get the gold out of the mine. And what was happening in the late 1800s was that they would mine the gold out of a mine and it would be empty and it would be worthless and no value at all because it's a big old hole in the ground. And so they would take some gold dust and they would load it into the shotgun and they would salt the sides of the mine so that it was filled with gold flakes. And then the investors or the, or the newcomers from the east would come in and they'd say, hey, we got this mine for sale. It's actually, it seems like it's got a lot of gold in it. Check it out. They'd go in there and they'd see all these gold flakes in there and they'd do their core samples. And they'd say, oh man, I'll pay you top dollar. 
for this gold mine. And so it was a huge con. And then, of course, the person that sold it would just disappear, and they got rich off assaulting the mines. Seems old-fashioned, but in 1997, a Canadian company called Brex said that they found a gold mine in Indonesia. And when they produced the samples and the core samples and the results in their lab reports, everybody in the gold mining community said, you've probably found the biggest gold mine in the entire world in all of history. This is amazing. And so Brex, in order to raise capital to mine this mine in Indonesia, they, they sold stock on the Canadian Stock Exchange. What started out as a penny stock means that each share was worth less than a dollar shot skyrocketed up to $280 per share. They raised $4.4 billion to pour into this gold mine in Indonesia. Well, something of that magnitude draws a lot of attention. And at some point, you got to put your money where your mouth is. So it's time to start mining this gold. The Indonesian government gets involved. They get third parties involved. One of those parties was a company from America. They go and they, they inspect the mine themselves. And they say, we don't find any gold at all. Show us your original core samples. And so they got a hold of the original core samples, and they had been salted. What they found was refined gold that had been shaved off of jewelry and sprinkled into the core sample. $4.4 billion, the biggest salting scam in all of history. And uh, it was so complex and convoluted that the Canadian authorities couldn't even figure out who to charge with criminal charges. Two of the people that they knew that they should charge died of natural causes during investigation if you call falling from a helicopter a natural cause, because you naturally hit the ground and you die. <laughs> so complex and so convoluted that they had to overhaul the entire Canadian Stock Exchange. So the laws that, that govern the Canadian Stock Exchange today happened back, originated back in 1997, just a few years ago. Interesting story about the con, about the manipulation, the manipulation of reports, the manipulation of people, uh, emotions. I mean, there's all these things that go into manipulation. What does that have to do with us today? Well, the point is, don't, don't bill people out of millions of dollars because you'll get caught. Stick to tens and twenties, all right? Obviously kidding, because none of us here are con artists. I mean, we would never intentionally try to bilk somebody out of their money. We would never intentionally try to manipulate people to do our will so that we're the only ones that benefit at their loss. And yet, you know who the, no the most important person is in my life? It's me. And the most important person in your life unfortunately it's not me it is you we are all concerned about ourselves and we're all concerned about getting what's good for me in this moment right here and right now and I would never knowingly and intentionally manipulate God and yet Jesus one of his greatest temptations was go ahead and pull this manipulation on God and Jesus says don't test the Lord your God and so even though I would never admit that I manipulate God or that I've tried to manipulate God if there was one person that I could bend to my will it would be God. Because there are some things that I want God to do in my life. There are some prayers that I want answered in my life. And I know that you can't manipulate God. Intellectually, I know you can't manipulate God. And yet, there's a story in the Old Testament about a guy who seemingly, successfully manipulated God. It starts in Genesis with a guy named Jacob. Now, before I get into the story of Jacob, and if you've been in church culture at all, you've probably heard the story of Jacob, Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the manipulator, the schemer, whatever. Um, we're going to look at Jacob at like a high-altitude flyover today. But the first mention that I want to make of Jacob is found in Hebrews. This is in the New Testament. This was written about 2,000 years, about 1,500 to 2,000 years after Jacob was alive on this earth. 
And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the faith chapter, it, says, it starts out, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. Faith is knowing that you know something even though you can't prove it. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, it lists all these hall of faithers, hall of famers in the, in the hall of faith. It starts with Noah. Noah, a great man of faith, lived his life by faith. Abraham, man of faith, great man of faith. And then it comes by faith. Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying... Blessed each of the sons of Joseph when he was dying. Keep that thought in mind. We find Jacob in, in Genesis. Genesis was written by Moses, written about 500 years after the events of Genesis, uh, after the, the events of what we're going to talk about today. So Moses, when he writes the books of Moses, he is so matter-of-fact. He said, this is what happened. And he doesn't extrapolate, and he doesn't explain, and he doesn't go into detail about why, why this happens and why that. He just says, this is history, this is what happened. So when we read the stories that Moses writes, it's like, oh yeah, okay, that's the way it went down. And so I want to stop and just slow down a little bit as we look at the story of Jacob, who seemingly successfully manipulated God. We find uh, the story starts with a guy named Abraham. You've heard me say it before. God comes to Abraham and says, Hey, Abraham, I'm going to use you because I want to reveal myself to the whole world through you. You're going to have a, a, a great nation, lots of people, lots of land through you. The whole world is going to be blessed, all right? So Abraham, 25 years after God gives him that promise, Abraham finally has a son. So the nation is starting to grow. His son's name is Isaac. Isaac doesn't have a wife. When, he, when Isaac's about 40 years old, Abraham sends a servant back to his homeland, say, Go find Isaac a wife. Goes and finds Rebekah. Brings Rebecca to Isaac. Isaac is head over heels in love with her. They are married. They consummate their marriage. Nothing happens. And finally, you know, Isaac's like, but we're supposed to be building this great big nation, and nothing's happening. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. This is Genesis chapter 25. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? If there's supposed to be a great nation coming from me, why am I in so much pain during this uh, pregnancy? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and this is important, because God communicates directly to Rebekah. There is no misunderstanding about what God says to Rebekah here. Why is this happening to me? Why is this such a difficult pregnancy? The Lord said, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Sounds like she's got two kids in her womb. Sure enough, twins are born. The first one comes out all red and hairy and ugly, and they name him Esau, which means hairy. The second one comes out grasping the heel of his brother, and so they name him Jacob. He's born just seconds behind his brother. They name him Jacob, which means he who grasps by the heel. It also means he who cheats, and this turns out to be a very, very fitting name for Jacob. They grow up. Esau becomes a man's man. He's a hunter. And uh, he becomes his father's favorite. Jacob grows up to be a mama's boy. He sits at home and plays Xbox. That's what the Bible says. Actually, the Bible says Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, the wild animals. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Talk about a dysfunctional family. This reminds me, though, that God said to Rebekah that these two nations within you will be at, at division with one another. They'll be at war with one another. And so this, this begs the question, did God cause the dysfunction? in Isaac and Rebekah's family? Did God cause them to have favoritism? We know better than that today. We know that it's not right to have favorites with our children. Did God cause that because he wanted two nations to be opposite of one another? This is what I was talking about when I said Moses writes things so matter-of-fact as, as he goes through here that this is just a history story. 
But when you look at it in the scope of everything, when you look at the whole story of God, we know better. God doesn't, you know, he doesn't bless dysfunction, but he did say that two nations are going to be divided. And we know through the rest of Scripture that God has a plan, He has a purpose, He's at work behind the scenes, in front of the scenes. He is always at work, He has a plan and a purpose. And so if He wants to raise up two nations from Rebecca, and He wants them to be at odds in order to accomplish His purpose, then that's going to happen. It's going to happen through sinful people like Isaac and Rebecca. It can also happen any way that God wants it to happen, but God doesn't cause us to go and sin. We know that. And when you look at the whole scope of the story, we see all the time God has planned, He has a purpose. And when people live into that plan and they live into that purpose that God created them for, things, God's purpose, number one, gets accomplished. Number two, it goes pretty well with that person. But if they don't live into that plan and that purpose, God's purposes still get accomplished. It just doesn't go so well for that person. We talked about Samson last year. Here's a guy who had a plan and a purpose for his life. God had a plan and a purpose. Didn't end up so well for Samson. He got his eyes gouged out, if you remember, because he always resisted God. Now, if you know anything about Bible history, think of Joseph or Daniel. These two guys lived in the purpose for which God created them. God accomplished his purpose, and it ended up very well for those guys because they were living into the purpose that God had for them. So keep that in mind as we look at this story. Here we're seeing a bunch of manipulative, selfish, conniving people. Isaac and Rebecca, each want what they want. Jacob and Esau. The next story that we read about them is the older brother Esau is out hunting some wild game. He comes in from the fields. He didn't catch anything. He didn't kill anything. And Jacob is there cooking dinner or whatever he's doing. He's got some lentil soup, whatever that is, and some fresh bread. And it smells really good. And Esau says, hey, Jacob, give me some of that food. And Jacob says, well, give me your birthright. Now, a birthright is simply the father's blessing on the oldest. It, it always goes to the oldest one in ancient times. Put it this way, I am the oldest of three boys. I'm the oldest brother of three. So when we get together and it's just my mom and my three brothers and I, and we have a meal, I'm always the one that just naturally prays for the food. I just naturally take the leadership of the family. That's not what happens even in ancient times that the older brother would be the patriarch of the family. He's being groomed to take over the family business as it is. And the family business in this case is God came and said, hey, I've got a specific plan for your family. You're going to be a great nation, lots of land. Everybody's going to be blessed through you guys. Big responsibility. Big birthright. Birthright also uh, connotates the inheritance, the wealth and the fortune the family's going to pass on. And so Jacob, the younger brother, says, well, give me your birthright and I'll give you some food. Esau says, what good is my birthright going to be to me if I'm dead? So sure, it's yours. Why would Esau do that? I mean, i got to think that Esau wasn't too serious about it. Like, eh, you know what, it's just a, it's just a title. Dad's going to do whatever Dad's going to do, no matter what side deal we have going on. Whatever. The Bible puts it this way, so Esau despised his birthright. And then God had to come and remind Isaac, I'm doing something spectacular with your family here. I have a plan and I have a purpose through you. Everybody's going to be blessed. You're not just a typical family. And, uh, and God reminds of his promise. But we see all through this story that the characters in this story constantly are forgetting this promise. And they're looking at what's good for them. Rebecca and, uh, and Jacob, the next story that we see is that uh, Isaac is old and he's blind and he's kind of, he knows that he's on his last leg and so he calls in Esau, his favorite son. He says, hey Esau, it's time for you to go out into the fields, kill something wild and make it and dress it up, make it tasty, bring me my last meal and I'll give you the birthright. I'm going to bless you. I'll pass on the blessing of the oldest to you because you're the oldest and you're my favorite. Rebecca overhears this and she says to Jacob, her favorite, and she says, hey, while Esau's out here hunting, 
go kill a goat, and I'll fix it up. I'll make it taste like wild game. And you go in there, take it to your dad, say that you're Esau, because he's blind as a bat, he can't see. Say you're Esau, and you'll get the birthright. And Jacob says, well, Mom, I don't think that's going to work, because Esau is really hairy, and I'm smooth-skinned. She said, well, when you kill the goat, take the skin of the goat and put it on your arms, and then he can feel your arms. And I'm thinking, how hairy was this guy? That's a lot of hair. But that's what Jacob does. He puts this goat skin on his arms, and he puts on Esau's clothes, and he goes to his dad and says, Okay, Dad, I got you a meal here. Go ahead and give me my birthright. And Isaac says, Is that really you? Oh, yeah. Feel my arm. See how hairy that is? For lots of hair, isn't it? Yeah, it's me. Isaac says, All right, here's your birthright. Passes on the family blessing to him. Passes on the inheritance to him. About that time, Esau comes in from the field, sees what happened, and he's mad. Isaac's even mad. Like, well, it's too late now. I've already done it. This is interesting because God said, the older shall serve the younger. And what we've seen here is that Jacob seems to have successfully manipulated circumstances to fall into line with God's will. That's what I most want to have happen in my life. I want to manipulate circumstances so that my life falls into line with God's will. Or let me say it this way, I would rather that God's will falls in line with mine. And so I will manipulate circumstances so that that happens. For example, several years ago, before I hit my knees in complete surrender to God, I was, I was playing Christian, and I was going to church, and I was being a good Sunday school nerd, and I was doing everything that a good Christian would do, going to church three times on Sunday. And then the, and the whole point was that I was hoping God would bless me with that special, that special someone. He didn't. But I found this special someone because she had beautiful long blonde hair, blue eyes, beautiful, you know, wore tight t-shirts. She was just gorgeous. And I said, God... I think you should save her so that I could date her in good conscience. Matter of fact, God, you're not willing that any should perish because that's what Peter said in the New Testament. You're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So would you save her? Furthermore, I am your child, and you said that if I ask anything in your name, you'll give it to me. So I'm in the name of Jesus, this girl. Thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test. Manipulating God. I am tempted even to... Obviously... That situation did not work out to my benefit. I manipulated, I connived, but I ended up being the one that got really hurt in that situation and uh, caused myself a lot of pain. Meanwhile, God is just back there saying, Dude, <laughs> you are totally twisting the scriptures. That's not, what, uh, that's not what I was saying, but you're being manipulative, you're being conniving, you're pulling a Jacob. And Jacob, we see here, it looks like he's successful at manipulating God, but this causes a lot of strife in his life. Because the next thing he has to do is he has to run from, e from Esau because Esau wants to kill him. All right, Esau wants revenge. Jacob has to flee to his, home, his mother's homeland, goes to his uncle Laban, says, Hey, Laban, I'm your nephew. And he's like, Oh, great. We need some work around the farm here. He says, But you can't work for free. What's your price? He says, Well, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel, because she's really beautiful. He says, All right, you work for me for seven years. You can have my, my daughter, Rachel. Seven years go by. They have a wedding ceremony. The, the bride has a veil on. Jacob's all excited. Darkness comes. They go into the tent. They consummate the marriage. In the morning, it's coyote ugly. Because he didn't get Rachel. He got Leah. He got Leah, the older sister. And the Bible says that she was weak. She had weak eyes. Now, I understand. In modern context, I understand what easy on the eyes is. This is the opposite of easy on the eyes. Because Jacob's reaction is, like, is not like, Oh, bummer, I got the one that I didn't want, but oh, that'll work. No, he's mad. He's like, hey, I'm the deceiver, man, and I got deceived. What's up with this, Laban? And Laban's like, oh, yeah, we don't really operate that way in this country. In this country, the older daughter has to get married first. But I'll tell you what. You work for me for another seven years, and you can have Rachel as your wife today. You just got to stay on for another seven years. 
Jacob's like, all right, that's fine. I'll do that. This is all good. At the end of the appointed time, Jacob's ready to move on. He's like, man, Laban, I've had enough. It's time for us to, to separate. I'll take my share and I'll go my way. And Laban's like, no, 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 you got to stay on. And they finally reach an agreement that uh, they will split the herd, they will split the flocks that Jacob has been managing and has grown, Laban has grown in wealth and in influence the whole time that Jacob's been managing this. Jacob says, I'll tell you what, I will take the weak flock. I'll take the spotted and speckled sheep and that will be my flock. You keep the perfect white ones, all right? This is bizarre, and I know we're running short on time, but this is bizarre, and Genesis chapter 30 is the complete story of this, all right? What Jacob did... Conniving Jacob, the manipulator Jacob, he took sticks from an almond tree and he broke them and he took a knife and he, and he whittled those sticks down so they were spotted and speckled sticks. And then he threw them in the water troughs. And so when the sheep would come to drink at the, at the watering troughs and they had these spotted and speckled sticks, they would do what they do to produce their offspring and that way their offspring would be spotted and speckled. This is what the Bible says. Whenever the stronger the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks, but for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, the man Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks. It is so matter of a fact. Like, hey, he whittled these sticks and therefore they had uh, spotted and speckled lambs. And he increased greatly. That's the way that Moses writes it. But we know better than that, those sticks were just sticks. It was God that produced the increase because God had a plan. God had a purpose. And here's Jacob trying to manipulate his circumstances. And all he's doing is spending time and energy whittling sticks. When we try to manipulate God's will and bend it to our will, that is all we're doing. Whittling sticks. Accomplishing nothing. We'd be so much better off to spend our time and our energy figuring out ways to trust God. And I wish that I was that kind of preacher that could tell you, here's the six-step plan for ways that you could trust God, but it is not that easy. I have to wrestle with this every day of my life, it seems, to trust God. I have to lay my will down every day, and it takes time, and it takes energy, and it takes focus. But when I lose my focus, I'm whittling sticks. The story goes on, that, uh, and there's so much more about Jacob, uh, but the story goes on, that he goes back into his homeland. Esau doesn't want to kill him, but we still see that Jacob's conniving and he's manipulative. He tells Esau at one point, yeah, I'll meet you over here, and then he goes this way because he's still afraid of Esau, doesn't fully trust, but something significant happens in Jacob's life. He loses his favorite son, Joseph. He has 11 sons at this point, and his favorite is Joseph. All the older brothers are resentful of Joseph because he's the favorite, and so they take him and they sell him into slavery. Joseph, they don't even know where he goes. He ends up in Egypt, and the rest of the story is pretty cool, but they take Joseph's coat of many colors, they bring it back to his dad, and they say, hey, dad, I think a lion got a hold of Joseph because look at all this blood on this coat, and Jacob is heartbroken. We don't hear too much about Jacob after this. We, the, the story the shifts, the focus is on to Joseph now, who's out in Egypt, and he's living, he's living actually pretty good. Uh, he's, he's living, uh, he's putting God first in his life is what I mean. He's not living good. He's in prison. He's got all kinds of bad things happening in his life, but he keeps his focus on God. Jacob, though, at the end of this story, Joseph has been raised to a prominent place in Egypt, and he ends up being the deliverance, not just for the whole nation of Egypt, but also for his father and his brothers, and he brings them into Egypt, and Jacob gets reunited with his son Joseph after so many years, and the new Jacob on the scene that we now see is 130 years old, and he is a much different man. He, is a, he has a, a, there's, a, there's an aura of, of grace and of peace about him. And, and when Jacob is 147 years old, he lived in Egypt for 17 years with Joseph and the family there. And at the end of his life, he says to Joseph, he says, Hey, bring me your two boys. I want to pass on to them the family blessing. 
the birthright. I want to pass on to them. And so Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh, and Jacob lays his hands on them, but he puts his right hand, the important hand, puts the important hand on the younger brother. And Joseph's like, no, 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 Dad. You gotta, the, the right hand goes on the older brother. And Jacob's like, no, no, no. This is the way that it's going to be. This is God's plan in our family. And he blesses, he passes on the Abrahamic covenant onto those two boys. The 12 tribes of Israel do not include Jacob's two sons of Levi and Joseph. The 12 tribes of Israel leave Levi out because they end up being the priests that take out care of the religious duties. And they leave Joseph out because that blessing got passed on to Ephraim and Manasseh, which are two of the tribes of the, of the 12 of Israel. And we see at this point, remember that story in, or the verse in Hebrews, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. 147 years old. The point of this is today is don't let it be 147 years before you submit your plan and your will to God. This weekend is Memorial Day. Tomorrow will be Memorial Day. 2014. It was 10 years ago. Tomorrow will be 10 years since I last saw my cousin Jason. Jason and I were the same age. Uh, we grew up together. We were six months apart in age, rather. We, but we were so close that we grew up together. And uh, I don't. He got married about a year and a half before I, I last saw him in uh, in 2004. And uh, I don't think he ever asked me to be his best man. It was always just assumed that if one of us got married, the other one was going to be the best man. And uh, and so Memorial Day 2004. I ride my R1 up to Cincinnati. I was living in Knoxville, Tennessee at the time. I took my R1 up to Cincinnati. Jason had a BMW 1100RS, and we went riding around town. We went out in the back roads. We had a lot of fun. He put his new wife, a year and a half uh, being married, put her on the back of his bike. And I remember riding a wheelie down the road right past him, and she punches him in the kidneys. He told me later, you better not do that. And we just had a really, really good time. We were so close. But at this point in my life 10 years ago, I was not who I am today. By the grace of God, I am not who I used to be. Because at this point in my life, I had pretty much just given up on God. You're not going to do what I ask you to do. I can't manipulate you to do what you want, what I want you to do. Can't bend your will to my will. I don't think that you're really concerned about my life. I'm going to go out there and do what I want to do. Lots of alcohol, lots of girls, lots of parties. But Jason, on the other hand, he was living for God. I mean, he drank a little bit. We'd gotten into some trouble when we were younger. But at this point... He was a newlywed. He was living into God's purpose for his life. He was a youth leader at his church. He was playing guitar in the worship. Uh, he, was, he was a good dude. He was a good guy. Last time I saw him was Memorial Day 2004. Three weeks later, Jason was riding his BMW to his parents' house in Cedarville, Ohio, about an hour away from Cincinnati. And uh, it, was, it was about 10 o'clock at night, coming up a blind hill, and over the, over the blind hill coming towards him, in his lane was a drunk driver. Instant death destroyed just death came to the family i got the phone call the next morning um and i was in charleston south carolina in a strange woman's bed got the phone call that jason's dead and i was tore up i was heartbroken i had a 12-hour drive to get from charleston all the way up to cedarville ohio and the whole way i was arguing with god god why would you do this to Jason and not me? I'm the one that's an idiot, and I know I'm an idiot. I know I'm out here living my life my way by my terms. I know I'm manipulative. I know I'm conniving. I know I'm evil. I know that I'm wrong. And yet Jason was living for you. He was living the good life. He was a newlywed. He had all these things going for him. Why him and not me? By the time I was on I-75, I got next to Florence, Kentucky. God spoke to me as if he were sitting in the seat next to me. I said, why Jason and not me? And I was mad and I had tears in my eyes, mad at God. Why him, not me? And God said, because Jason 
accomplish my purpose in this life and you have not. You just shut me up. It's another two years, 2006, before I finally took that to heart and said, okay, God, I have train wrecked my life enough. I have tried so hard. I have manipulated. I have connived. I have worked so hard to make my life better than what I think it ought to be that I think if I tried, I don't think I could make it any worse. And I know I can't make it any better. So you do whatever it is you want to do. I give up. I give it to you. That's my prayer for you guys today. I have to go back to that prayer almost every day and say, all right, God, I want you to accomplish your will in my life, and I'll give up. Because in giving up is when we gain. Jesus said, whoever wishes to gain his life must first lose it. Let's lose it. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for your word. Thank you that even though it seems Jacob was a successful conniver, we see that he wasn't really until the end of his life when he really surrendered to you that peace came to his life, but your purposes, they prevail no matter what. We just want to be a part of it. So would you show us the areas of our life where maybe we're holding on too tight? Show us the areas of our life where maybe we're being manipulative and don't even know it. Show us the areas of our life that you want to touch, and maybe we'd be willing to have you touch our lives. Keep us safe out there today. Be with those who are injured from yesterday. Lord, we look forward to meeting again in two weeks. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great race today.